This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Yemen about the impact of the conflict there on civilians in the north of the country, where a Saudi-led coalition has been conducting a campaign of aerial bombardment. But we begin in Argentina, where all-party presidential primaries on Sunday saw Daniel Scioli, the candidate from Cristina Kirchner's governing party, emerge on top. But the gap between Mr Scioli and the candidate from the centre-right opposition was close enough to suggest that he may have a fight in his hands in the actual presidential election on October the 25th. To find out more, I'm joined now from Sao Paulo by our Latin American correspondent, Tom Hennigan. Tom, could you first perhaps explain this concept of an all-party primary? Normally we think of primaries as happening within parties. Um, This was a system set up by Nestor Kirchner, uh, the the deceased husband and former president uh, of the current president, Christina, where everyone who wanted to run for executive office, so that would be uh, the president or the, the provincial governorships, would have to participate in a primary. And that all of those tickets that would go ahead to the general election must dispute a primary, even if your party had no internal dispute. If you, do, if you only had one candidate, you still had to participate in the primary. The primaries would all take place at the, on the same Sunday, which was uh, this Sunday just gone. And that the winners of those primaries would then go on and dispute the um, general election in October. So you had the opposition parties, um, which had quite um, competitive internal primaries, some of them um, competing against each other. But what a lot of people were looking for is when you put those votes together, how did the opposition look? And then you had Christina Kirchner's uh, victory front grouping within Peronism gathered um, around Daniel Scioli, who had no one competing against him, um, but yet he still had to run. And he was the one that even though he had no opposition, he came out as the most popular of all the president can- presidential candidates who will now go forward to the general election in October. So he was expected to come out on top. Is that fair enough to say? And yet uh, there seemed to be some question marks over how compelling or how comprehensive his victory was. Well, he was the favourite to win. He did win, um, but he did not open up a significant enough lead to make it look inevitable that he will win the contest in um, October. And that's because he both failed to get 40% of the vote or to open up a 10-point lead against his closest challenger, the centre-right candidate, Mauricio Macri. And in Argentina's electoral politics, you can win on the presidency on the first round, even with just 40% of the vote, so long as you have a 10-point gap um, between you and the second-place candidate or you are elected automatically if you get 45% of the vote. Um, So Macri has made sure that the election is going to be competitive going into October and that he's close enough to Scioli that this isn't a a given for the the ruling Peronist faction. 
but Macri still is significant um, ground to make up against Scioli and he will be um, relying very much on, on many people who didn't vote for him on Sunday going, well, he's emerged as the main competitor to the ruling um, block, so that people might see him as the best chance of getting the perilous out of power migrate to him. But that, that's still to be seen whether that will happen. So can you tell us something about these two candidates? One is the mayor of Buenos Aires and the other is the governor of the province of Buenos Aires. Yes, uh, Daniel Scioli is a former uh, speedboat pilot who in the 90s was invited into politics by a former um, Peronist president, Carlos Menem, who implemented um, a lot of structural changes in Argentina's economy, painful changes, right-wing changes, but always um, practiced politics very much as a populist politician, um, uh, very much in the Peronist tradition, and he sought to surround himself with popular type of personalities. And Daniel Scioli was one of these. He was invited to join um, Menem's group, uh, basically on the fame that he was a famous sportsman and married to a model. He's never really expressed any kind of political ideology. Uh, when Menem became completely unpopular um, after his 10 years in power, which ended in 1999, uh, Scioli was a bit lost in politics, then they emerged as a Peronist, uh, internal Peronist opposition to Menem around the Kirchners. He jumped over to them. Uh, he served as Nestor Kirchner's vice president during his presidency. When Christina then ran for the presidency, Scioli became the, uh, the governor of the province of Buenos Aires, far and away the largest, most populous and economically important province in Buenos Aires. But he, all that time, people are going, who is Daniel Scioli? Everyone knows he's a very nice guy. He seems to get on with everyone. He is a, a very consensual type politician rather than confrontational like Christina Kirchner. But what he actually represents, very few people have known, um, even though he is now pretty much a quarter century in public life. And Macri, the, uh, his challenger? Macri uh, is the son of a very well-known industrialist um, who was born in Italy, moved to Argentina as a young man, created a large fortune in various uh, industrial fields, though as a lot of people point out, uh, given the nature of Argentina's economy in the 20th century, always pretty close to governments. Uh, the family um, conglomerate was bailed out by the military dictatorship in the early 80s. That still rankles with a lot of people in Argentina. And Macri uh, went into the family business, didn't really stay very long, didn't um, make much of a, uh, of a presence of himself when he was in the family companies, um, left got himself elected president of Boca Juniors football club in the 90s. And Boca Juniors, by far and away, the most popular club in Argentina, kind of like the Manchester United of, of Argentina. And it had been a club that had not really won a lot um, for many years and that had all sorts of financial problems. And Macri cleaned it up and they won a series of, um, of titles and this boosted his popularity. And then he founded his own political party. And again, many people wonder, you know, Macri, he is a, a centre-right politician, but he has flirted in his own past with Peronism um, himself. And people are always sort of asking, you know, how much of this is a personal project by uh, 
you know, daddy's son who didn't really get on in the in the companies, and how much of it is actually driven by a, a kind of a a political conviction or an, an actual ideology. He's sort of dismissed by many people who are by no means all parentists as a, as a kind of a Twitter politician, a great man at firing off short phrases. But when you actually sit down and try and get at what his political convictions are, that can be quite difficult. But that said, he is considered to have been quite a good manager when he ran the city of Buenos Aires. But running the city of Buenos Aires is much easier than running the whole of Argentina because it is a, a wealthy uh, uh, city and a relatively progressive um, city. So it's quite uh, easy to run the city of Buenos Aires if you have a mandate much more different than when you're trying to run the whole of Argentina. Now, the uh, the Peronists have, uh, just before these primaries, there was something of a uh, of a scandal, uh, or at least scandalous allegations about some of them, which uh, seem to have uh, also caused uh, a pretty obvious split within the group. Yes, uh, the uh, primaries also saw um, the contest to elect uh, gubernatorial candidates. And for the Peronists, it's absolutely key that they hold on to the province of Buenos Aires. That um, holds around 37% of the electorate, has always been the great Peronist stronghold, this sort of rust belt of uh, satellite cities around the city of Buenos Aires, which they call the Conurbano, which is the great um, well of Peronist votes in Argentina. And the favourite to become the uh, Peronist candidate for the governorship is a very close um, loyalist of uh, President Cristina Kirchner called Annabel Fernandez. And he has been close to her since her husband came to power in 2003. But there have always been um, allegations swirling around him. He is a, a, a controversial figure, to say the least. Uh, he is very much a, an attack dog of the uh, Kirchner presidencies, but he is also someone who comes from this rust belt around Buenos Aires, from a city called Quilmes, and he has always faced allegations that he has been um, involved in criminal activity um, in Quilmes, that people connected to his political machine in Quilmes have been involved in violence, criminal activity. And for um, the last 10 years, there's been huge concern in Argentina about an explosion in drug trafficking through the country, a lot of cocaine from Peru and Bolivia, um, using Buenos Aires as a means to get to Europe. And also the production, uh, uh, an extraordinary boom in the production of methamphetamine in Buenos Aires. And there have been several officials charged, though very few of them convicted, with facilitating the importation of huge amounts of ephedrine, which is a precursor to the manufacture of, of methamphetamine. And just before, a week before um, the primaries, one of Argentina's most respected journalists, Jorge Lanata, on his Sunday night television program, directly accused Annabel Fernandez of involvement in the drug trade. Um, Fernandez responded saying that, in fact, the person behind this accusation was his own Peronist um, opponent for the governorship ticket. Um, they have since, uh, uh, since Sunday's primary, they've sat down and met and have said that they have sealed um, an understanding between them. They're not going to a non-aggression pact, if you like. But uh, the Peronist vote definitely did suffer in the province of Buenos Aires 
and many people are pointing to these allegations, that the allegations might turn off people from voting Peronist, independent voters, the sort of voters that Scioli needs if he's going to become president in October. And so that there is a concern amongst the Peronists that these drug allegations will rumble on for the next 70 days until the presidential election dampen their vote in one of their key areas because the man who had these accusations made against them is going to be on the ticket in October and that could create a problem for the Peronists. Finally, Tom, Christina Kirchner can't run for a third term as president. So to what extent is this uh, a, a totally new chapter or to what extent is the presidential election going to be something of a referendum on Christina Kirchner? It is going to be something of a referendum, I think, um, uh, in the sense that she has been very, um, very busy in trying to hoard as much of the power that her family and her circle have um, managed to accumulate over the last 12 years. And she's not willing to give that up. Her son is going to be running for uh, the Congress for her home province of Santa Cruz. She forced against um, Scioli's will she forced one of her closest collaborators onto his ticket as his vice presidential candidate, Carlos Anini. And Christina and the people around her have been saying, we couldn't really trust Scioli on his own. But with Zanini there, we know that, uh, that the, what they call the conquests, the victories of the Kirchner um, presidencies will be preserved. Um, but many people see that as, as uh, you know, that. Zanini and the Kirchneristas that will be in the Scioli administration will manage to put a block or at least slow down any stampede towards a more orthodox economic policy, which the, the Kirchner group are fundamentally opposed to. But also what many people are saying, actually what this is about is that Christina needs to have influence in an eventual Scioli presidency to try and stop the courts going after her, her family and some of her colleagues for the corruption that went on in the, in the Kirchner presidencies. Because the amount of uh, accusations, investigations that have started um, in the press, some of the stories uh, would show that there has been looting of the public finances um, on a multi-billion euro scale. Tom Hennigan, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. After four months, the conflict in Yemen shows no sign of ending. As Saudi Arabia and its Gulf allies escalate their efforts to defeat Houthi rebels allied to former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. Much of the Saudi-led Arab coalition's offensive has been focused on an aerial bombing campaign in the north of Yemen, which has killed and wounded thousands of civilians. Dr. Natalie Roberts is the emergency coordinator for MSF, Doctors Without Borders, in North Yemen, and she joins me on the line from there now. Dr. Roberts, could you describe the situation where you are? I'm based in uh, in North Yemen. I'm based more um, north of Sana and up towards the Saudi border. Uh, so, from my point of view, the the situation is increasingly desperate for the people people living up here. 
um, what's been happening north of Sana in, in this area is, is not really the ground troops that you see uh, and you hear about near Aden and the movement of forces. In fact, here it's kind of more of an attrition uh, war where the, the, the same thing is happening every day and that people are, are subjected to, to airstrikes every day. Um, so for, for this area, the, the situation is just getting worse and worse as the population uh, feel that nothing is, is changing and they don't really have anywhere safe to go. Um, it does feel to, to people living here that there's, there's nowhere they can, they can go to be sure that they, they're not going to be, be killed in an airstrike. Um, there's some areas that, that feel marginally safer to them, but then, of course, um, everybody is ending up in those areas and trying to find somewhere to live, trying to find food. Um, it's just a, a very difficult situation. So quite normally other people stay in their homes um, where at least they can, they can eat and they have a roof over their head. Um, but in those places they're, they're pretty certain that um, there will be airstrikes at least once, once a week and in other places once a day. Um, so for these people they're in the north they're really stuck in a situation that they, they can't really change. Um, and it doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. There doesn't seem to be any um, possibility that, that this situation is going to improve for them. And, and I think that's why they're getting increasingly um, desperate and frustrated and, and uh, despairing of, of where they're going. Can you describe something about these airstrikes? Are they targeting military installations or military groupings and they just happen to accidentally hit civilian areas? Or do you believe they appear to be targeting civilian areas? It's difficult for me to say whether they're, they're intent, uh, purposely targeting civilian areas. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm not really a military analyst. Um, but in the places where I've been, in the north in particular, and particularly in Sadr region, um, which is in the far north near the Saudi border, um, it's quite clear that, that various civili- uh, civilian installations have been hit. Um, so the places I work, um, some of the health facilities that we work in have been directly hit or hit uh, in very close proximity. Um, at the same time, many schools, homes, um, food distributions, uh, often the infrastructure like the roads and the bridges uh, and the fuel stations have been, have been directly hit. Uh, and in some of those places, it is very difficult to, to argue that they were aiming for a military installation um, because there's no evidence of any, any military installation nearby. Um, and from what I hear from the population, there was, there was no particular indication to hit, hit the health facility that they were working in or, or to hit the school that was nearby. Um, so although I can't you know, say for sure that, that uh, they were targeting these places, it does seem that there, there is a, an agenda to disrupt the population, particularly in the very far north in, in Sada. What kind of injuries are you treating? We see some very significant injuries from the from the airstrikes in particular. These are these are very big big weapons, uh, very major missiles that are hitting places, uh, and they cause a lot of damage. If if you're in the the target uh, in the in the building that was hit directly, then there, there's no survivors. Um, but for people within a, a radius of up to a hundred meters, there's often very significant injuries caused by the shrapnel and the and the fallout. So you see, uh, um, you know very massive uh, trauma to head, body, limbs, um, often, often fatal trauma. Um, if, the, if the person doesn't die immediately, then they, they die within a few hours. And this is to, to adults, but also to children. So we're seeing uh, children with very significant uh, traumatic injuries. 
What's the logistical challenge in terms of supplies and in terms of you reaching the places where you need to reach people? It's very complicated to access these places. We're trying to help uh, myself and my team are trying to help as much as possible in, in the places that are very difficult to access. Um, and particularly in, in where there's a health facility that's been damaged or, or where it's difficult to travel on the road into the, into the main health facilities that MSF has been running for some time. Um, when we get to the health facility, if it has been bombed or been affected by damage, it usually means there's no water supply, um, electricity supply. Um, often any support they used to receive from any other actors is, has stopped because it's too difficult to, to get the supplies or the, or the finance over to the health facility. And often the staff have, have left, um, and that's quite normal, um, that people don't really want to stay and work uh, when they feel that they're targeted. So many of the health facilities are lacking, are lacking the staff, are lacking the medical staff that used to work there. Um, usually there are staff that remain behind, they're trying to, they're trying to do a job, um, but they don't normally have any equipment um, because it was damaged. Often the windows have been blown out um, and they're just trying to work in, either in the facility or in another facility that they've, they've found to, to try and carry on there. Their work. So, for example, one hospital that was bombed, they they in fact have moved into a into a school, um, because the hospital was too badly damaged to use. But the school is not really set up to be a hospital, so they're they're trying their best in in the surroundings they have. And then for me, it's it's the the fact that we have to travel around these places on the roads, um, and the roads themselves are targeted. So it's um, it's a, a risky situation for for me and also for the for the team that, that choose to work with me. So um, although I reassure them that I, I would hope that MSF would not be targeted, um, the team themselves, you know, they're, they're anxious the whole time. Finally, Dr. Roberts, the Arab Coalition, which is responsible for many of these aerial attacks you've been describing, is made up mostly of allies of the Western powers. What should the Western powers be saying to countries like Saudi Arabia about how they're operating in Yemen? I'm really not an expert in uh, in politics or in in uh, the coalition or, or who is supporting who. I think from from my side, I can just witness what I'm seeing on the ground, which is that there are major civilian casualties from the from the coalition bombing, as there probably are from from the other side in in the south of Yemen. Um, and all I can say is that I'm witnessing some major um, traumatic fallout from from the the conflict that's ongoing in Yemen. Um, and this is not just in military targets, but in, in the civilian population. And uh, um, from my side, as a doctor, I would, I would like for the conflict to, to stop. Dr Natalie Roberts, Emergency Coordinator for MSF in North Yemen, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Declan Conlon, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>